Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. When was the last time that you went to a doctor who was able to take the time to listen carefully to your story, empathize with your needs, and draw on their expertise to craft a bespoke treatment plan for you? Well, for a variety of reasons, many doctors simply aren't able to take this time with each patient. And recent technological advances, such as electronic health records, have had the perverse effect of requiring even more of doctors' limited time to stay on top of. So is it foolhardy, then, to see advances in artificial intelligence, or AI, as the potential savior with regards to the doctor-patient relationship? Dr. Eric Topol doesn't think so. In his book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again, he makes the case for leaning more heavily on machines to help with diagnoses, craft personalized care options, digest the millions of new medical papers published each year, and so on. But Dr. Topol also uses words like revolution and rebellion when discussing the new mindset that medical professionals will need to adapt to bring the focus away from billing and back to the patient. Well, this particular revolution may not be televised, but it might as well be podcasted. Dr. Topol elaborated on his ideas recently with our own Jonathan Swersey. Let's hear more about what AI can and cannot do for medicine. Dr. Topol, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, and need to just start off asking how your knee is doing. Oh, gosh. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, it's never been right, you know, since the surgery. Uh, I can get by, but, um, you know, it's definitely a suboptimal outcome. Uh, so I still have to wrap it every day and certain things I can't do, but at least I'm not in pain. So I, that part is the improvement. Thanks for asking. You've been on, on quite a journey and you shared a lot of that story in the book. Um, and I'm just curious, um, why choose to start the book with that story? It's so personal. Well, you know, I think it is uh, an exemplar of the problems we have in medicine. That is... Um, the outcome I had, which I was obviously affected by and was quite adverse, but it could have been pre prevented. Uh, that is the lack of having information at readily at hand, the lack of uh, having an individualized approach, understanding each human being, the, yep. the patient yep. at depth, uh, lack of compassion in medicine. Um, all these things, I think, were highlighted by my own experience, and they, they certainly affected me. Uh, and I hoped that that would grab people as to the shallow medicine we have today and the opportunity to go deep. Yeah, that's, um, that's I think, points that are very, very well, well said. Um, you know, we think a lot about humans here. So EPAM Continuum is a um, innovation and design studio, uh, but but really grounded in, in human-centered design. And as I've thought about it, um, it strikes me that so much of what we've built in healthcare really has de-emphasized humans. Um, and you know what I mean by that, it's not just patients, but it's providers and advocates and caregivers and other people who are involved in care. And so it just seems to me that so much of what we've done is really built around billing and reimbursement. And I'm wondering, you know, how we can begin to think about using AI and ML to bring humanity back into medicine. Right. I, well, I couldn't agree with you more with respect to the erosion of the the interhuman bond and the fact that over the years there's been this steady, what I would consider horrendous uh, erosion of the patient-doctor relationship and as an outgrowth of that, the burnout, depression, 
and peak number of suicides ever in the medical profession. So can we turn this around? And I do think that the ultimate goal of AI, which has some short-term things like accuracy and speed and efficiency, but the longer-term potential here is that we have a rescue, that we essentially re reduce the load on doctors, make it life easier for them to assimilate information, to outsource a lot of things to machines, and also offload to patients who want it to find more responsibility, provided they have the support, the algorithmic support. <laughs> so if you combine all these features that AI could bring us, it really gets us to a, a new plane whereby doctors have time, the gift of time, to spend with patients, to reestablish the trust, the presence, the relationship, the compassion, the, the reason why we went into the medical profession in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe when you went to medical school, um, was there a course in um, using your electronic health record and how to talk to a patient while you're typing? No, there wasn't. Uh, I'm, I'm too old for that. But there was, in my medical school, uh, which was in, at Rochester, New York, uh, there was a, a, a big course on listening to patients. And that was really interesting um, that in contrast to today, where there's so little time and doctors interrupt patients within seconds yep. of them starting to talk, we were, we were taught to just sit there, listen, and that oftentimes the diagnosis would be made by the patient just by listening. Hmm. No less that the, the, the listening was uh, an art that demonstrated compassion and, and, and true care. So um, that kind of went by the wayside when all these things happen, like electronic health records that you alluded to, relative, relative value units, and all the business, the big business of medicine, which is responsible for its attrition and dehumanization. And that perspective that the technologies can help bring humanity back into medicine, um, is that is that core in medicine now, or is that still a peripheral sort of view of it? What, do you, what are your colleagues thinking? Oh, I think the idea that technology could enhance humanity in medicine is alien. It's contrary. I think that because there's so few examples, and many people harp on the digital um, health record, how that was an abject failure, a yeah. fiasco. And so they, they think of terms of technology and medicine as, as the EHR, and that was uh, a, a dreadful. But here we're not talking about that. Uh, here we're talking about all the different mechanisms that we can reestablish, not just time, but the bonding uh, between people. So, you know, I, I think it's possible, but I also would be the first to admit that if we have improved efficiency, Yep. and productivity, uh, we could actually make things even worse with that by the the overlords, that is the managers and administrators demanding doctors to to do more, see more patients, read more scans, and on and on. So there's a liability there that technology could also make things considerably worse if that's even conceivable. So the so the primary care visit goes from you know half hour to fifteen minutes to seven minutes. Now you've got some more technology, and you're playing. You know how fast can you get it done? 
yeah, like in Asia, they're down to two minutes in many places. So, you know, why not squeeze doctors more? <laughs> you know, this is the, the, the bean counter attitude hmm. that I need to squeeze everything I can get out of our clinicians and not just doctors and, and nurses, um, you know, physicians, assistants, everyone. It, it's across the board. So this is a serious problem we've seen, which is um, that eking out of all the productivity and all the relationship. Uh, and we need to uh, be activists to turn this around because that's the default mode. That's the one we've been in now for decades and we've watched this happen. And that's the problem. We've watched it. We've never revolted, rebelled. And it's time to be thinking about that. And as you do think about that and this call for activism, who who is it that we're calling to be activists? Is it physicians, nurses, patients, administrators? Well, probably not the administrators. Yeah. They, they, they are not really ready for that. There are some places, as you know, that physicians are the administrators, but they are the rare uh, yes. exception. And that's been shown to be a very good model. Um, but for the most part, we're talking about the doctors because they will lead the charge. And then whether it's nurse practitioners and uh, you know, uh, physical therapists and phys physician assistants and all the other uh, health professionals would likely follow them. So, you know, I think that's where we need to see the breakout, which is doctors leading this charge, getting organized, and, and you know, we're not going to take it anymore. And we are demanding time with our patients. And we're going to use this, uh, this gift of time in a way which has previously never been uh, used. Uh, that is, uh, we're going to take it back and turn inward. It's, it's, it's a wonderful vision. Um, one of the other things I think about as I'm listening to you is how doctors are viewed in society. And I think, you know, there was a time where maybe it was almost a, you know, a God complex. The reverence was so high, right? Where it led to, I don't, maybe a resistance to being questioned, or a resistance to engagement. You know, are physicians wanting to become more accessible? Are they wanting to engage more with, with, with patients and caregivers? That's a really important question. And I, I guess I would say yes. Uh, and the reason I say that is, not so much for this cause, which is the ultimate one, but we have seen more physician activism in recent times than ever before. So uh, a great example of that is the uh, NRA. Yeah. When, when the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine published their uh, new policy recommendations about guns, the NRA said, uh, stay in your lane, and then doctors came alive. That to me was the most vivid recent demonstration and as you know, uh, a lot of these were uh, women doctors who are uh, they're apt to be the most uh, outspoken activists. Yep. And often they're young. Uh, yep. So it's like a new generation of doctors that are not used to the ones that are being passive. But what we've seen now with this is our lane uh, and other examples um, about, for example, gender equity times up and other things that are important matters in medicine, we've seen how social media and 
uh, really sharp, outspoken, often female, but not only, of course, uh, physicians have taken charge and, and have shown leadership. So I think that is a the beginning, the core capability to to build on that and to get this. It's it's likely going to be the younger generation of doctors who are watching colleagues. You know, burn. Some of them have experienced firsthand severe depression, not of themselves or colleagues, or even um, known of a colleague who's uh, taken their life. And it's trying to really turn this around. We didn't have a chance. We didn't have a, a mechanism, a path, but I think we do now. And that's why this organized front is going to be really important. Social media is clearly helping amplify this, and we can take advantage of that capability. This is, this is great. Um, I want to step back from deep medicine a little bit um, and, and just briefly touch on one of your other books in, in conjunction with it, which is The Patient Will See You Now. Um, I first encountered that book in 2015 when it came out. Um, at the time, my then four-year-old daughter was in treatment for stage four rhabdomyosarcoma. Oh. And when I heard the title of the book, um, I can't even begin to tell you how, how profoundly it just impacted me. You know, it was about managing the complexities in healthcare, um, using technology, empowering ourselves as caregivers. If we take that book and we combine it with deep medicine, I feel that there's an overarching story that you're, that you're telling, you know, as a, as a body of work. I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit. You know, surely. Uh, but first let me ask what happened with your daughter. Um, oh, thank you for, thank you for, for asking. Um, she is thankfully in remission. Um, we ended up switching hospitals in the middle of her treatment um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, I was just counting today. I had opinions and medical teams in from 12 different facilities around the country and in Canada um, who I was engaging in her care. Um, but I am really very, very grateful that, that she's here. She's now eight years old. Wow. That's fantastic to hear that she's doing well. So. Yeah, well, getting back to your question, um, that book was about democratization of medicine, as you uh, touched on. And the fact is that uh, patients have been suppressed. They, they have been uh, basically treated with medical paternalism. Yep. And, and we're starting to see the ability to generate their own data, you know, through various sensors and, and apps to access their data. They need to own their data, people. Just like, you know, if you were really looking after your daughter, yep. you'd want to have all her data. And fortunately, you know, at the time she's only four, so there was only a limited amount from birth That's to right. then. But each of us wants should have all their data because it, it's our body. We paid for it. We have the most vested interest and our lives could certainly depend on it. So we don't have that set up yet. That's important. Mm -hmm. But the patient um has to drive much more. Now, it's not for everyone. There are certain people who are very uh, happy with the, to be uh, suppressed, to be uh, dependent yep. fully on doctors. But what we've learned is that uh, these days, uh, to have that uh, dependence isn't always necessary. There are a lot of things that are emerging 
where you don't aren't going to need a doctor. I mean, routine things like diagnosing urinary tract infections, ear infections, skin rashes, and all sorts of things. You'll be able to do that with uh, with AI and apps yep. uh, that are accurate, or if not more accurate than going to a doctor. So, we already have seen things that are making this democratization possible, and there are going to be many more of these uh, uh, capabilities for those patients who are willing to take charge, uh, more responsibility. One other point, and that is that um, this idea of outsourcing or offloading to patients who are willing um, is, is a big way to decompress the crazy lives of doctors, which they should be appreciative of. They should be embracing. They're not yet. And that's largely because of this historic uh, issue of control, the authority, the control freak nature, which we get out of that mode, and hopefully someday we will. Interesting. So, so the first book was about demo- democratization and access to information and empowering patients, and deep medicine um, focuses, I would say, more on on the use of technology to let doctors be doctors again. Right. And take back, take back the profession. And take back the profession. Yeah. Yeah. And and basically stand up for patients. Uh, that is, don't don't get uh, stomped upon any longer. Now that there's going to be a way to reestablish the way medicine used to be. That's that's the ideal, um, uh, you know, goal uh, here. That we get back to. You know, if you go back to where medicine was like in the '60s and '70s. It was a precious, intimate relationship. Yeah. It was trust. It was, you know, when you saw a doctor, it was one of the things that you really looked forward to because here was somebody that you really could turn to when you were in pain, when you were suffering, or when you were worried. Hmm. And now that's, you know, the rare uh, instance. And we've got to get that back. I think there's a way to do it, but uh, it won't happen by accident. Absolutely, and it, and it, and it makes a lot of sense to me to me as well. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because I think we started to touch on this. So we've been talking a lot about patients and physicians. Um, one of the other major constituents in healthcare are caregivers right, and advocates, and I think you certainly touch on it. Um, and it sounds like your wife Susan played that role for you in your care. Right. And I'm just I'm wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about the role of caregivers and, and advocates within healthcare today. Well, they're essential, uh, and in fact, uh, large because we don't have that t- tight relationship. It's even more uh, important than ever is that the caregiver is giving the care that's missing in healthcare. So you know the the problem is that uh, the true emotional attachment, the true um, embodiment of what medicine's all about, um, used to be, you know, emanating from the doctor-patient relationship. And what's happened is, you know, caregivers have taken on a lot of that role. And so, you know, I think what we can do now is not, not that we should diminish the importance of caregivers, but they should be supplemented. They should be, uh, you know, if we had a stronger core relationship, the role of caregivers, it would still be important, but they wouldn't be as dependent on them. You know, my uh, experiences that you uh, uh, reference, where my wife helped me so much because, you know, I could, I could talk to her and she knew how I was suffering. Hmm. But 
I, all, all my all the doctor wanted to do is get, have me get anti-depression medications, hmm. which was farcical. And that, you know, being roughed up by a doctor is much more common than most people recognize. Um, so you were so you were talking about Susan and saying how her role was essential for you. Yeah, no, we we just uh, celebrated our fortieth you know wedding anniversary, so we've been partners for a long time, and uh, she's helped me out. I've tried to help her out, and yeah, the caregiver thing, and she was doing that for her parents and to their nineties before they died, and uh, they lived with us even. So, you know, we understand like the whole caregiver um, story, yep. but I also think that um, we, we've had to re- rely on that more than we used to. Um, and, you know, that part of that, of course, is the aging population with yep. multiple comorbidities. But part of that is because that the, the core relationship is, is threatened. I think when you look at people in that age group who are caregiving for providing care for older parents. Um, and when you have a sick kid, you're getting it from, from both ends, right? And so I wonder about the potential for these technologies, um, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning, to be able to help caregivers as, as well. Oh, I think so. I think that when, there are, when there's data flow, and it's uh, going uh, as it already does through a smartphone, it can be relayed to a caregiver, and in many instances, the caregiver will be much more facile and equipped to deal with the feedback from the data, that generation and the algorithm. So, yeah, the, the idea that caregivers will not just provide emotional support, but also uh, interpretation of algorithmic feedback from sensors, from the collective data, from virtual coach, if you will, for various conditions. And ultimately, when we get rid of hospital rooms, when patients are more apt to be monitored in their own bedroom uh, with exquisite, you know, vital sign monitoring that's equivalent to an intensive care unit. But the caregiver will be a, a critical part of that loop because they're going to be getting uh, the alerts. Uh, the ones that don't work well in hospital rooms mm. where the alarms are going off yep. every few minutes. Yep. But now we'll see ones that really work well. And they'll alert caregivers that something isn't right with their mother or father or relative. Yeah, I think that those are really great examples. And I know in your typical hospital room, if it's shared, um, you may have now multiple sets of people all engaged and each medical team running on its own clock. And so that adds a lot of complexity in in the environment, I would would imagine. Um, Yeah. And so I, I talk with a lot of our clients um, about artificial intelligence and applications for it. And uh, recently read an abstract of a paper. The paper was entitled Computer Diagnosis of Primary Bone Tumors. Um, it was a preliminary report, and it was published in Radiology. And they were using computers to evaluate x-rays with quite good results. Um, that paper was back in 1963. And so... What I'm wondering as you think about this and as I talk with people is in the context of a problem space that's been around for a long time, right? the application of computer technologies to support diagnoses or, or identification of maladies, um, what, what's different now in a material sense? Well, there are many things that are very different than these projections from the 60s and 70s. Yep. 
the Schwartz article in the New England Journal in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that we didn't have a way to deal with the massive torrent of data, which, of course, that in itself is different. We never generated terabytes of data for any given individual. We didn't have a, a way until now that's chiefly deep learning, uh, a relatively new subtype of AI, really only that's been growing uh, in momentum in the last decade. So we have new tools. We have far more data than ever before, exceeding the capacity. And essentially, we have no choice. We have to resort to uh, machine help because this is there. There's no even superhumans that can handle this. And fortunately, just the right time, we've got the computer hardware capabilities with GPUs. We've got the the uh, the type of AI that will support this, uh, and we've got so many things in the right direction, except for um, the embracement, the 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 goal. Of, of incorporating this to bring back what uh, is the right aspects of medicine, emphasizing uh, the the humanity, the humaneness. Yeah, interesting. And, and as you speak about that, and I think about these torrents of data, um, I can almost feel the complexity that we've added to the practice of medicine and what we're asking our physicians to be held accountable for. That's right, because as it turns out, if we're going to have deep learning, we have to have a uh, inputs that are comprehensive, which we don't have today, because the output from a neural network is only as good as the inputs. And right now we have only fragments of people's data about their health, whereas we should have every part of their data from when they were in the womb up to the present moment. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, right now we're talking about adding a genome, uh, gut microbiome samples, various sensors no less everything that would be in their paper and electronic record. So we're way behind in getting that comprehensive data source uh, for to, to have maximal um, uh, output from uh, AI tools. That's great. Um, we have just a minute left, and I want to come back to something you talked about earlier, which was the role of young physicians and the emerging physicians in, in helping to get these things adopted to help bring the humanity back into medicine. If you could change one concrete thing about the way doctors are trained today, the way medical students are trained, what, what would it be and why? Uh, well, I think it's that kind of patient-centered uh, aspect that has been lost. You know, right now we, we've got too much, uh, you know, Abraham Verghese uh, has written a lot about this and he wrote the forward to the book, but it's about the idea that, you know, we're treating a scan, uh, a data set and not a human being. Hmm. It's about, it's about listening. It's about true presence. It's about time. And that, you know, going back to what I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, that, that relationship, that willingness to listen and cue in and show uh, compassion and empathy uh, and that that's what we what it's all about. And we have to get back to that. And, I, you know, I don't know that uh, in our 150 U.S. medical schools yep. that that is uh, cultivated nearly as much as it should be and reinforced. It's a it's a great point and very well taken. Um, just the one last question for you, then, you know, if we you know, as we look to continue these discussions, 
Um, who should we read next, at, you know, after you, and who should we be speaking with, do you think? Well, I, I certainly recommend Abraham uh, at Stanford because he has a presence uh, initiative. Okay. And so he's, he's leading the charge. He's our leading medical uh, humanist today in the country, I think. Um, but, you know, there, there's, there's so many people out there that I think uh, understand the technology side of this. Yep. And also are, are cued into the importance of, of getting care back. So, you know, he, he's the first person I would think of, but there's, I'm sure, many more. Okay, good. This, is, this has been um, a very special opportunity for me. I want to thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. Um, again, I've looked up to your work for, for quite a long time, so for me this is very meaningful, and I just want to thank you. Oh, gosh, you're very kind. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks to Dr. Topol and Jonathan Swersey for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, and to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.